Well, this morning I want to invite you to grab your Bible. We're going to go back to the book of Exodus that we've been journeying on this last little while. And today we are picking up in the story at Exodus chapter 7. And we're going to work our way through. We're going to hop, skip, and jump a little bit through chapter 7 to chapter 8, verse 19, where we're going to pause in our series on the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. If you're just joining us for the first time, if you're not familiar with Exodus, it's the story of God delivering his people, the Israelites, from a place of slavery in chapter 1 to a place of freedom and song and new beginning in him in chapter 15. And it is a story, as we have been reminded, that God has put in his word to speak to our story, to speak to our life, our situation, what he wants to do in us. And it is to serve as a biblical picture of the kind of, of spiritual freedom and new beginning God wants to bring to, to our life, uh, to yours and to mine. And this is why we are intently going on this journey together. This is why we are intently going chapter by chapter, verse by verse even, uh, into these first 15 chapters of Exodus's larger story to see again what God wants to do, what God has purposed to do in us and through us and for us, now in the person of Jesus, whom God used the Israelites to bring forward in winning in their freedom and delivering them from Egypt, which we're going to read about. And today we're diving into chapter 7, as I said, and this is a transition point. You know, there's transition points in life, aren't there? There's the graduation of high school. There's getting your first job. Uh, there's maybe getting married or having a child or retiring. There's all kinds of transition points in life that happen. Some of them we welcome, some of them we plan for, some of them unfortunately just come our way unexpectedly. But chapter 7 is a transition point in what God is doing in taking his people on a journey towards freedom. It's the transition point in the text to the plagues. Oh, yay. You know, the, the infamous 10 plagues God brings about to loosen Pharaoh's grip on his people. And up until this point in the story, if you know it, it's all been preparation. It's all been preparation up until this point of transition. God's been preparing his people for their deliverance, setting them up, getting them ready. How? By first revealing himself to them starting with Moses, and then Moses taking that message of good news on to the people. And then God calling himself, calling those people to trust in him, and giving Moses then, the, and the people, the, the repeated assurance of the promise of his word to, to save them. Even when it felt like in the journey, as God was preparing them, that this was not looking like it was ever going to happen. And that's what we heard last week as we finished off in Exodus chapter 6. And you know, as I was thinking about this transition point and everything leading up to it being preparation, and, and you know, at, at points in the, in the narrative, feeling like, is this even going to happen, as we were reminded of last week, this is what God does for you and me, doesn't he? This is what God does in our lives as we consider our own journey of faith. You know, he prepares us for what he wants to do in our lives. He lays the groundwork of faith for us to begin to walk into by first revealing himself to us. And I don't know if you can remember the first time that God began to get a hold of the attention of your heart by revealing himself to you. Maybe it was in, in church. Maybe it was through a timely conversation with another believer. But, or maybe you just came to the end of yourself and you're like, all over again, God, where are you? But, you? but he began to reveal himself to you. He was setting you up. He was preparing you for what is still yet to come. He was laying a groundwork of faith. 
And out of that revealing himself, he was beginning to call you to give your life to him in baptism, right? In serving him. In saying, not my way, God, but, but your way. He, he's preparing you. And, and in all of that, he's been giving you day after day, week after week, every day the sun rises and sets, as we sang, the assurance, the repeated assurance of his word that he will bring complete and final deliverance and salvation to you from the darkness of the world that we find ourselves in. You know, that's why sometimes the gospel is this repetitious message because we've got to hear it over and over again, and it's all preparation. This is the message of the gospel, that believing and trusting in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and taking him at his word, it's all preparation for the life in Jesus that is promised and is still yet to fully come. Anybody know there's a life still yet to come? Anybody excited about that life still yet to come? You know, our, our friend Robert has just been transitioned to that place. Not on account of what he did, but on account of who he believed in. That's, the, that's what God's Word tells us. But now chapter 7 marks the transition point from preparation to plagues, you know, to these 10 successive waves of, of judgment that will be the means by which God will reveal himself further, display his power, manifest his glory, and execute his just justice to bring his people to a place of freedom that they can begin to really live a life of worship to him, where they're really free to do that. And that's always God's end game for our lives. It's always the thing that God is wanting to bring about, freedom in your life, where you are free to worship him and live a life dedicated to him, knowing the blessing it will give you in return. But what we need to face up to, at least what I'm facing up to here this morning, you know, is the fact that, that these plagues in Exodus are a bit of a wild and that points disturbing ride in Scripture, are they not? If you know the story. But, here's my conviction, they are a, a ride in Scripture that I believe God has placed in His Word to make an unmistakable and lasting impression upon our hearts to demonstrate who He is. To demonstrate who He is, to demonstrate His nature, to demonstrate His reality, to, to show His power and His utter relentless dedication, if you will, to rescue and save the lives of those who will call upon him. This is what I see in these successive waves of the plague. God's relentless dedication to rescue and deliver us from the, the, the oppressive power that the Bible calls sin that has corrupted everything and everyone. Every aspect of who we are and God's good creation has been corrupted. We see the beauty of God's creation. We see the reflection of who we are being made in the image of God, but fractured through and through at the same time. And perhaps even more to illustrate to us in these plagues, at least in what we're going to look at today, is that there are really only two ways to respond to them. There's only two ways to respond to these acts of God that we're about to journey and read about. The one way is the way of Pharaoh, which is to dig your heels in and to harden your heart against what God is doing and to utterly reject 
him. The other way is to see them as opportunities for sober reflection and softening your heart toward God in the midst of seeing who he is and his claim upon our lives, which is what I want us to look at today. You know, just shifting gears for a minute and thinking back on my own journey, you know, on, on the August long weekend of 2014, something happened that, that made an impression upon me that I will never forget. You may also remember it if you were living in Burlington at the time, and you remember the August long weekend of 2014. On the Monday of the August long weekend, 2014, in the afternoon in Burlington, Ontario, right here, we received two months of rain in three hours. Do you remember that day? Does anyone remember that day? I'm never going to forget that day. It was like the heaven opened up, the heavens opened up, and, pour, and just dumped straight down for three hours. It was, it was extraordinary. It was bewildering. And it, it, it brought flooding, probably like Burlington has never seen in its recorded history, maybe. Heavy rain clouds moved in, if you weren't around for that time. And it was just like they parked over southeast Burlington, which unfortunately is where I live. They just parked there and dumped and it was biblical in proportion, it seemed like to me, you know, in terms of what was happening. And here's the interesting part. Lynn and I weren't even home for it. We weren't home for it. The only reason we knew about the rain was because all of our neighbors started messaging and texting us and showing us pictures of what was happening. We had just started the first day of our holidays. And, uh, and that was the last day of our holidays, actually, because we had to come home right away. But they were sending us pictures of the street, which was literally falling, you know, filling up to the top of the curbs with, with water, this river of water that had come that was making its way southward to the lake. And as all this water kept coming and building and rising, it then began backing up through the, through the sewers of our street, flooding our basement to the uh, top of the first step at the bottom of our basement stairs uh, to the point where, like a lot of other people, we, we had to completely uh, gut our basement afterwards, which kind of worked out. It kind of worked out for us because our basement really needed the renovation and now it was going to be covered. So it, it, on the other side of it, it kind of worked out. I don't know about you, but when you see the force of nature in action, as we often do, at least in the media, but perhaps you've seen it firsthand, it takes your breath away. It really does take your breath away. It makes an indelible impression upon you that you don't forget whether it's a windstorm, a snowstorm, a flood, or some other natural phenomenon that, that suddenly and, and sometimes painfully you know, makes you aware of, of how little in control we are. You have an experience with nature that way? You know, in the plagues, God was showing Pharaoh that he was not in control. And at every step, God was giving Pharaoh, every step, God was giving Pharaoh opportunity to soften his heart toward God and turn from his ways, that Pharaoh might avoid the, the calamity and destructive end of rejecting, resisting, and hardening himself toward the one who had made him and the, the one who embodies love and is the living definition of love itself, God himself. There's, excuse me, there's no doubt that the plagues are a challenging read which is why I'm kind of ramping us up for it. As we begin now to look at this next phase of God revealing himself and calling for response. 
But let me just say this this morning as we consider these things. They are in this story, I believe, to make an impossible to miss, indelible impression upon Pharaoh, all Egypt, the text says. I think even God's own people, the Israelites at this point in their journey. And I would say, as a recorded word of scripture given for us, to make an indelible mark and impression upon you and I as we would consider what God is doing here. That we might see and be awakened to who God truly is and, and turn to him as each of these plagues were sent to strike at the very heart of Egypt's worship of false gods and false powers that they were building their lives upon. You know, in each of the plagues, God was showing his power over the, the so-called gods of Egypt and even over Pharaoh's uh, power himself, who was likely, most, likely the most powerful figure at that time in known history. As God is revealing himself to not just Pharaoh, but all Egypt, God's own people, just in case they had forgotten who the real God was and who was really in control and who was really able to bring life to us as we are really inwardly craving and searching for it. You know, through the plagues, as one commentator has said, God was not only, I love this, God was not only taking the Israelites out of Egypt, but as each plague struck at the heart of Egypt's worship of false gods, God was actually maybe taking Egypt out of the Israelites. You know, and giving them this front row seat to the display of God's power and reality over all these other so-called gods that were being propped up and pursued and named and adored in the land that they were in. But as God brings the pressure and distressing nature, you know, of these plagues, which we're about to look at, you know, we see that they are only really one of two ways to respond to them, with a soft heart of repentance toward God, or like Pharaoh, a hard heart of hostility and rejection that in the end leads to destruction rather than salvation, the, the very opposite of what God wants to bring. And, you know, it's still the same today. Famous uh, 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. You know, at the mention of the topic of God, people usually respond with the softness of repentance or the hardness of hostility. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've seen that in conversation. You know, some who might call themselves perhaps agnostic maybe see themselves as somewhere in the middle. But at some point, we all make our peace with God or we don't. Because God is someone you ultimately cannot avoid. As Pharaoh is about to find out, despite all of his worldly power and resource, he cannot avoid God. None of us can. We either make our peace with him or we do not. And the choice, God says, is ours to make. And so there are only two ways to read these plagues as we now begin to look more closely at them, to see them as loving acts of mercy to pry people away from the destructive end of worshiping a, a false and empty God or to respond by calling God's acts in these passages as nothing more than the work of a toxic, tyrannical, malevolent, made-up power, which sadly is the current conviction of you know, renowned atheist and author Richard Dawkins who writes this about God in his book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, 
control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, can't believe I'm making it through this, megalomaniacal, maybe God doesn't want me to, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Horrible. But maybe you've wondered similar things in terms of these weighty, harder passages of the Scripture that we especially see in the Old Testament that is maybe hard for us to get our hearts and heads around. Is this the same God of the New Testament? It is. He is the same one. Or maybe you know someone who looks at God this way or Christianity this way. You know, and my prayer is that you will go on this journey and you will suspend judgment and you will come out the other side seeing God's acts in these passages in a different light. You know, God's self-revelation has always been, unfortunately, death to some and life to others. In sharing the message of Jesus with people, that's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians where he said, to the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And the question is, how are you responding in reading these passages in terms of the way that God is bringing about his self-revelation? How do you respond to God's word or his commands, or his claims upon your life in Scripture about what he says instead of what maybe you say or what the world around us says. With a hard heart like Pharaoh, where you, now nah, I'm digging my heels in on that one. Or I need to rethink this maybe. I need to consider what God is saying here because maybe I'm not seeing it all. And maybe I need to trust him. You know, one more preparatory point before we get into the weeds of the text this morning because I know this is a big ramp up. But in verse three of chapter seven, which we're gonna look at in a moment, it says this, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. This is what God says to Moses ahead of time. And in this verse, it would appear, as you see it on the screen behind me, that God is the one who's hardening Pharaoh's heart. And in one way, that is true. But in another way, it isn't, because God Hardening Pharaoh's heart is just one half of the story, one half of the equation. Twice later on in the next chapter, chapter 8, which we're going to get to, in verses 15 and 32, it says, he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart and would not listen. So I guess the question is, like, who's responsible for the hardness of Pharaoh's heart? Who, who is it? Is it, is it God? Is it, is it Pharaoh? And, and if it is God, I mean, how is that fair? How is that just? you know? Or is it Pharaoh, God giving him free will, giving us free will, and and Pharaoh choosing to harden his heart? And I believe that the answer to both is yes. The answer to both is yes. See, at every point in the story that we're about to read, Pharaoh persists in rejecting God, every point. At every invitation and warning in the journey, Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart toward God. It was Pharaoh choosing to harden his heart toward God over and over again. Bad place to be. But on account of Pharaoh persisting and rejecting God, God honors Pharaoh's persistent decisions and turns Pharaoh over to the things his heart is bent on pursuing. But here's the interesting thing, even in doing that, God continues to use Pharaoh to bring about God's greater glory 
as God brings one opportunity to fear after another, to give him another chance, to give him another chance, but it keeps on at the same time revealing to the people, to all of Egypt, who God is, as God just does one crazy thing after another to demonstrate his power and his reality. And so Pharaoh's refusals become God's opportunity. And that's the way that God orchestrates it all, to loosen his grip on God's people. But God turning our hearts over to what we persist in pursuing is also what the New Testament says. It's also what God tells us in the new covenant in Jesus when we persist in rejecting him and ignoring his word despite all of God's invitations and all of his warnings to us in his word and by giving us a sensitive conscience to him in the work, the gracious, mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. And so in the opening chapter of the book of Romans as we just consider this conundrum, it says this, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. And then it says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the created who is forever to be praised. And you know what? That's what we're going to see in a moment. We're going to see the Egyptians worshiping the created instead of the creator. And that is the thing that God is wanting to pry their hearts away from in his relentless love and in his persistence. And so God in respecting our persistent and deliberate choices, will eventually turn our hearts over to those desires, both the good and the bad, including the ones that lead to emptiness and destruction, out of respect for what we have persistently chosen in the freedom that he's given. And I don't know about you, but I find that a sobering, scary thought that I think should lead us toward a softness of heart as we consider things. You know, God has placed the story of Pharaoh in these chapters, in his word, for us to see why that we might not follow in his footsteps, that you and I would not do the same thing. That's why the story is here. And so with all of that, let's finally grab our Bible and the, or the one that's on our phone and go to Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. And I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit so we end because I think at some point we're all going to need lunch. Verse 1, Then the, the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, Moses, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. Verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment... I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Let's just pause there. Even though Pharaoh has hardened his heart toward God, God, as we have said, is still using him. God uses Pharaoh's hardness of heart to bring forward these 10 plagues. Now, according to God's own word in, in this preparatory comment that God gives Moses, what is the purpose of these plagues? It's in verse 5. God says, It is so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And God not only wanted Moses, you see, to know him, God not only wanted the Israelites to know him, but God graciously and lovingly wants all of Egypt to also know him. Because that's always God's heart in all of this. And God sent the plagues to be this unmissable, unmistakable, unforgettable sign to them of who the real God is, that they might turn to him. And even though the plagues brought distress, it was only temporary. And at every point, the plagues were opportunity to turn 
so that in, in that way, the plagues were loving acts of mercy to show people in an unmissable way who God is and his reality that they might turn to him. This is why God sent Jonah to Nineveh in the Old Testament. The Ninevites in the book of Jonah, unlike Pharaoh though, they responded with a soft, repented heart to what they had heard the prophet Jonah tell them about God's desire for them to turn away and avoid calamity. But let's come back to Exodus 7, picking up at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. This is what it says in verse 11. But each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Fascinating story. We see that, you know, before these plagues begin, God first gives Aaron and Moses and you and I a lesson in spiritual warfare. That's what's going on here with these magicians prior to God sending these plagues. You know, in the ancient world, a staff was not only the tool of a shepherd for protecting and directing sheep or their flock, but it was also a symbol of power, like, like Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. And it always comes back to Lord of the Rings. I don't know why. But, but, you know, in the hieroglyphics of Egypt, from archaeology, you know, we see that Egyptian kings and royalty, they're depicted with staffs, right? Staffs of power. The serpent is also there in the cobra, but in response to this sign of Aaron's staff becoming a snake as God commands, Pharaoh summons his magicians. He's like, whatever, I'm calling my own magic. Thank you very much. And the text says that these sorcerers, these magicians, these witch doctors, these other religious people having a different idea of God were able to do the same thing. And nowhere does the text suggest that this was sleight of hand or just an illusion. But it, the text seems to suggest this was an actual ability to do something supernatural. And you know, like in light of the battle that is about to occur between Moses and Pharaoh, which is really Moses and God, and it's a bit of an unfair fight, but you know, this anti-God figure in the story who's the most probably powerful in the world at the time, should it surprise us, there might be some spiritual warfare going on in the midst of this situation. You know, in my own experience, on rare occasions, I've seen manifestations of the demonic in situations over people's lives. But here is the lesson, I believe, that, that God is giving to Moses and Aaron and even Pharaoh in this scene. And it is that in Aaron's staff, swallowing up the other staffs that have become snakes as well, is that God is showing that he is always greater and he always has the authority that brings victory when there's a spiritual battle going on. This was to remind Moses and Aaron of God's authority over other gods, other spirits, other powers, other ideas, anything else that would rear its ugly head against who God is. And I think that's the truth you and I should be comforted from as we consider. You know, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes about how we are to prepare and strengthen ourselves when we feel we are encountering, encountering spiritual opposition or going through a bit of a, an inward, unseen, spiritual battle of some kind in our walk with God. Paul writes, put on the full armor of God 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. And then he goes on to list them in the imagery of, of, of armor, the various ways we are to resist the attacks of the enemy in Christ. He, he talks about God's truth, righteous living, being grounded in the peace of the gospel, choosing faith and resting in the promise of salvation, putting on the helmet of salvation, as Paul says. But in going back to the story after this demonstration of God's power over the secret arts of Pharaoh's magicians, how does Pharaoh respond in seeing them lose? Is he humbled? Is he sobered? Does he change his mind? None of the above. None of the above. He digs in because he hates God at this point, and he hates God's people. Because he is under the oppression of the evil one who hates the same. And he is not interested in having a change of heart. It says in verse 13, Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Do you know that even in seeing something supernatural, it does not necessarily mean someone will turn to God. And so now God has given Moses and Aaron this lesson in trusting in his power and authority for spiritual warfare. God then calls Moses to begin announcing the next phase. Picking up verse 14, let's go there. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that, is, that was changed into a snake and then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you've not listened. So this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. Again, God repeats the promise. What is the promise? Sorry, the purpose. What is the purpose of this plague that's coming? It is to confront Pharaoh and his unbelief, and it is to show him and all Egypt who God really is. And so with the staff that is in my hand, Moses said, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds, over the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad, so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt, it says. Talk about God making an indelible impression. Now, was the Nile turned to actual blood? Was this maybe a red tide of algae that had come and poisoned the water? It doesn't really matter. What we need to see is that in commanding Aaron to strike the waters of the Nile with his staff, what God was really doing in this moment was striking at the heart of Egypt's false worship. It's false worship. See, the Nile is what made Egypt a power. Egypt would be nothing but an inhospitable desert, a lot like the nations around it, if it wasn't for the Nile. Without the Nile, they wouldn't be anything. In a very real sense, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile for what it gave them. It was their security. It's what they believed in. It was their source of fertility. Its canals and streams made their land fertile. In fact, 
you know, it was, it, there was an Egyptian god dedicated to the Nile whose name was Happy. You can see her in the picture on the screen behind me, although she doesn't look that happy to me. And in fact, it's quite possible that the previous Pharaoh's daughter, who we read about in the opening of Exodus, the one who was bathing and saw Moses in that mini ark that she gathered him from the river, was bathing there as a fertility rite in the hope of becoming fertile, in the hope of becoming pregnant. And maybe even that's why she took pity on Moses and brought him in. We don't know. But you wonder as you look at the layers of meaning in God's word for us. And so God temporarily strikes the Nile and causes its waters to turn to blood. He's striking at the Egyptians' belief in happy in an unmistakable, unmissable way. Let's keep going. But the Egyptians... Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And mentally underlined this, Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. What did he do? It says this in verse 23. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. God is calling Pharaoh in this moment to relent, to turn to repent. But instead, he hardens his heart and he walks the other way. And you and I need to be careful of doing the same when God may offend us with his word that we're not quite ready yet to accept. Let's continue on real quickly here. Chapter 7 ends by saying seven days passed after this. And now things get a bit weirder in chapter 8 as we close. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go that they might worship me. And this is where it gets weird. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and onto your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on, on you and your people and all your officials. And you got to ask the question, frogs, frogs, why frogs? This is weird. This is weird, you know? But frogs are one of the few amphibious creatures that are able to live in both water and land, right? And this is just conjecture on my part, but there was an Egyptian frog god named Heket. And you can see it on the picture there. That's Heket, the frog god of Egypt. The Egyptians were big on believing in the afterlife. Good doctrine, right? Bible talks about there's an afterlife. Only the Bible says, unlike what, what Egypt was believing at this time, that you, you know, the Bible says you can't take with you anything from this life to the next. But in Egypt, from archaeology, what we know is that they stuffed their pyramids, their tombs, with, with chariots and furniture and all kinds of stuff in the hopes of using those things in the, in the afterlife. But God says to us in his word that the only gold you're taking into eternity is the gold he's produced in your heart, in your character, in your trust, a gold that will last all eternity. And so maybe in this concept of crossing over from death to life that the Egyptians were all in on, this frog is kind of like a metaphor that human beings are made for not just this world but the one coming. And they got part of that right. But they weirded out in connecting it to a frog and worshiping it. And the point I'm making is this, that these plagues are not random. They're not random. God had reasons. 
And in the second plague, God is just once again pronouncing judgment on another Egyptian false god who had ensnared the hearts of his people. And maybe, not only the Egyptians, but his own people. And here's the thing. God's like, I don't want you to, to try to look for life in a frog or nature or something created. You need to come to me, the creator. And I'm just smashing the illusion here that you have set up that this thing is the thing that is giving you life. And you know, God is still doing that today because some of our own beliefs are being intermingled with the ideas of the culture around us of things that we think are going to satisfy the heart and really lead to life. And they're created things. They're not the creator. And you know, Richard Dawkins is right as we close. God is a jealous God. But he's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. The most loving thing that God could do would be to reveal himself to us in such an unmistakable way that we would turn to him, the author of life, and not have our lives come to the end and wonder what it was all about and not even really have an understanding of what is still yet to come, but that we would be in such a secure and peaceful and fulfilled place on account of living for him, the greatest gift you could ever receive. I want to ask the worship team if they would come and help our hearts prepare. There's one more thing that God does as we make our way to verse 19 and we're skipping along for the sake of time because there's still lunch somehow coming. But you know, God then instructs Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh that, there's, that what's to follow is, is flies following the, the frogs. You know, in verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, because Pharaoh finally relented and he had relief, and it says he, he backed off for a moment in all of this, and he said, okay, God, and he said, uncle. In verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said, and he went back to resisting God. He had had enough. He took a break. He said, okay, maybe I'm going to repent. And as soon as the pressure was off, he went back to his hardness of heart. And the takeaway that I have for that is that sometimes when the pressure of life is off, it doesn't always serve us well. Because when the pressure's off, sometimes we don't seek God as we should. And God uses the pressures of life to sometimes move us into the place we need to be. The moment the pressure was off for Pharaoh as he finally relented for a moment in seeing that his own witch doctors could not replicate what God was doing with the flies. He relented, but then he went back. But even the magician said, this must be the finger of God. They became soft even when Pharaoh still would not. Here's what it says in the book of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
Would you stand with me as we close? You know the way to a soft heart? It's just simply to say, God, you're right. And it's simply to say to him, yes. And it's to repent of what you know is not in keeping with what he's calling you to. And so, Heavenly Father, as we close today, we want to celebrate your goodness, your relentless love for us, your commitment to use every means and resource of things you've created to get a hold of our attention, that we might come to you, the living God, that we wouldn't resist you, reject you, but we'd embrace you. And when you speak and even offend us, Lord, with your word by calling us on our stuff, that we would repent and always keep a soft heart to you, knowing it'll always return to us as life and glory to your name. And so, Jesus, we just want to bring the condition of our heart to you today as we close. Your very first commandment that you gave Moses 13 chapters later in Exodus 20 is you shall have no other gods before me. And so, Lord, we don't want to have any other God before you. We want to repent of depending upon or looking to any other God of our age instead of you. So Jesus, give us a right heart with you this morning and give us a heart of repentance where we have resisted or walked away or been looking to something else. Holy Spirit, would you just come now as we just take this moment to just do business with you. So just take just a second And have a time with God here right now. Asking him to give you a soft heart to him. Repenting if necessary. And asking him all over again to be your first love and your only God. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ministry you're bringing to our hearts right now. Thank you for the softening work of your spirit. Thank you that you never turn away anyone who turns to you or repents or calls on your name. Come and have your way. Renew a right spirit within us. Soften us, Lord, to you, we ask in Jesus' name.